is five and nine or anything like that? Because recently, if you did, they would have done these things called NAPLAN tests. And you've probably all heard about NAPLAN. They've been going on for quite some time now. But did you know that there's other jurisdictions around the world that also have things similar? Like Texas, they have something quite similar as well. And, and one teacher recounted when she was making a test to prepare the students for their equivalent NAPLAN, she prepared a test of 20 questions covering a broad range of topics. And one of those questions was this. Question 11. List in any, no in, in any order the four seasons. Now, could you possibly imagine that 67% of the students gave the following answers? Dove season, deer season, quail season, and turkey season. <laughs> Not quite what they were hoping for, I think. It reminds me of a time when three friends decided to go hunting, and they were a lawyer, a doctor, and a preacher. And as they were walking along, they came upon this big buck. And so they all got down, and they all took a shot and they fell this big buck and they went to look at the animal this this monstrous big deer and uh, as i was looking around it they were trying to figure out well who actually killed it whose shot was it that killed the deer and so they got into an argument these three people about you know that the lawyer said well no no well, it's my shot definitely and the doctor said no no it's mine i definitely had the, the and the preacher was like no no you guys are all wrong it's it's me it's me and so they got in the argument in this game um, warden came across and was like, guys, I can hear you from a mile off, let alone any other animals no longer in the, in, the, in the area. What are you arguing about? And they said, well, we're trying to figure out which one of us killed this buck. And the game warden had a look at it for three seconds and went, it was the preacher. And they're like, how could you tell so quickly? Well, that's fine. Look at the shot. It went in one ear and out the other. Now, I hope that your experience with preachers isn't that it goes in one ear and out the other, and I hope that won't be your experience today. Um, but you don't have to be a preacher to know the feeling of not being listened to. As parents, how many of us have been parents or are parents still? Like, it's one thing that you start, you never stop, really, is it? But it's our experience of not being listened to, isn't it? No one listens to us sometimes in, in, in the house. And, and, and we all have that feeling of not being listened to. You'd like to think, though, that, you know, some of us who maybe don't have 30 minutes of a sermon but have been parents for 30 years, might, something might have some staying power, something might stick. But as Pauline reminded me recently, don't worry with parenting, it's only the first 40 years that are the hardest. So a bit of encouragement there for us younger parents and maybe some parents who are yet to be. Today I want to introduce you to a prophet, to a preacher, who had, had a pretty tough assignment. He was called to be God's mouthpiece at a time when Israel was falling to pieces. And the worst part is that God called him to preach and told him, Every word you speak will go in one ear and out the other. No wonder he was called the weeping prophet. 
His name was Jeremiah, and we find him in the 17th chapter of the story. And a little bit of a quick recap. You see, God created man, but man rejected God's vision. God then makes a promise to Abraham that his descendants will be like stars in the sky. Too many to count. And when God makes a promise, he keeps that promise. And he does this by birthing the nation of Israel. Through this nation, God is revealing himself not only to Israel, but to all the nations. It's all part of his plan to bring Jesus into the world and salvation for all. For a time, the nation is unified and strong. But as power is passed down, God's ways are not. Kings are evil and the kingdom becomes divided and so does the allegiance of this once strong nation. The northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians and now only the southern kingdom of Judah remains. While Judah did have five good kings over a period of 350 years, five in 350, bad, bad odds, most were as evil as the northern kings. Here's a good example from 2 Kings um, chapter 2. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he, what do you reckon he did? Well, he reigned uh, in Jerusalem for 55 years. It's a fair amount of time. His mother's name was Hephzibah, just, you know, random information. Um, do you reckon he did good in the eyes of the Lord or do you reckon he did evil in the eyes of the Lord? Well, the odds are not in his favour, are they? Five out of 350 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations of the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced divination, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Now, I really do believe in giving young people opportunities to lead. I think leadership, investing in the next generation and bringing those leaders forward is so important. But maybe coming king in year seven is not the greatest idea. Because that's really what we're talking about here. If you want an equivalent, you know, put it into our culture. Uh, I think there should be a rule that you can't become king until you're done with acne. Mind you, that still rules me out. <sighs> I, I, I certainly would have been a good case, though, here for Manasseh. You see, he didn't just do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible tells us he did much evil, more evil than the Amorites, and he shed so much innocent blood. But it wasn't just Manasseh. Of the remaining six kings in Judah, only one is good, and that's Josiah. But he challenges my theory because he was only eight when he took the throne. So, anyway... But like the northern kingdom, God raised up prophets to give the kings and the people his messages. It is time for Judah to hear God's plan in light of their persistent evil. 
If God continues to bless Judah while they are living so inconsistently with God's word and life, it will send a confusing message about who God is and how life in community with him works. God must discipline them. He does so with a distinct purpose in mind. The prophet Ezekiel gives Judah this message. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. So what does God do? Well, he raises up another pagan nation, the Babylonians, who will do to Judah what Assyria did to Israel. Over a period of 20 years, they capture them, burn down the city, destroy the beautiful temple that Solomon built, and deport the people to Babylon. This begins in 605 BC and is completed by 586 BC. God, though, gives them a warning message, and we find these words in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. It says, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. No remedy. Really. You know, that's not exactly what you want to hear from a mechanic, let alone the God of the universe. But just because there's no remedy doesn't mean there's no plan. And here's our bottom line today. We are never without hope because God is never without a plan. I want you to say that with me. We are never without hope because God is never without a plan. Perhaps you've heard this scripture from Jeremiah 29, 11, one of the most well-known scriptures. For I know the plans... I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. God is speaking directly to his people. Now, at first glance, I'm thinking this plan sounds really good. We know we're never without hope because we're never without because because God's never without a plan. So, God, what is the plan? Lay it on us. Well, I want. Now, have you ever looked at the verse just before Jeremiah 29, 11? Let's look at Jeremiah 29, 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Did you get that? It's a 70-year plan. It's a 70-year plan. Pain suffering destruction 70 years god uh, i was more thinking of the 70 minute plan like that's much more in my time frame um who who would rather go with a 70 minute plan yep i'm pretty sure you would like you can bake a really good cake in 70 minutes start to finish and then you can even start eating it in 70 minutes like that's my kind of plan 70 minutes would be great but we don't always understand God's timing. We're never, though, without hope because God is never without a plan. You see, here's what God knew about Israel, and it's what he knows about you and me. What you love will change the way you live, but how you live will never change the way you're loved. The Israelites, 
They forgot their first love. They had done much evil in the eyes of the Lord. They were looking for love in all the wrong places. A story that I'm sure is familiar to so many of us and definitely to our friends who write music lyrics. But though the people had forgotten God, he had not forgotten them. How they lived would not change the way they are loved. And God wanted them back. Do you notice in Jeremiah 29, he says to them, I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. He's not some angry God working on payback. He's working on the way back. Their way back to him. We're introduced to Jeremiah, though, with these words of chapter 1, of Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. See, Jeremiah's assignment was to preach to the people, although they weren't going to listen. His response was, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. It was a tough first preaching gig, no doubt. I would have wanted out too. But God assures him in verse 9, God says, I have put my words in your mouth. You know, there is a principle for us in this. In God's employment contract, he doesn't ask us to be successful by the world standards, but faithful. Success is faithfulness to God, not good results. Success is faithfulness to God, not good results. So there Jeremiah stands in Jerusalem. He's, is, he is one of the ones left behind to declare, you're not without hope. God is not without a plan. He will bring his people back. But that was a tough assignment, but one with which Jeremiah was faithful. You see, God told Jeremiah to stay behind in Jerusalem after Judah was exiled to see the ruins and to write down what he saw. Jeremiah is standing in a pile of rubble as the people are walking single file to the east, to Babylon. There is smouldering embers from the fire that destroyed the temple Solomon built for the Lord. He weeps bitterly and he writes a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations, which means to weep but there's one bright spot amidst all the tough love and discipline God tells Jeremiah to tell Judah that he is going to bring you back home and maybe you've heard these words before and didn't know it came from Jeremiah's words to the now exiled nation of Jesus but just like you and I sometimes Jeremiah would have to remind himself of this hope as we see in the book of Lamentations chapter 3 verses 21 to 23 yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope because the Lord's great love we are not consumed for his compassions never fail they are new every morning great is your faithfulness did you know that those words were penned while he was standing in the rubble of a defeated Jerusalem gives us some sort of inspiration as to the heart of God for his people doesn't it that there is still hope because the Lord's great love is not consumed his compassions never fail then you every morning great is your faithfulness
Isn't that a beautiful picture and yet hard to take in? God is just and righteous yet fully compassionate. Sometimes I hear the question, is God the God of wrath of the Old Testament or the God of mercy in the New Testament? My answer is yes. Yes. That's the beauty of looking at the entirety of God's story and the fullness of his nature. See, God is completely just and completely merciful. See, most of us struggle to be both. We're probably either one more tendency to be one than the other. Um, we're probably a little bit more tendency pretty much that, that there's right and there is wrong and, and there's consequences or there's second chances and, and second chance after second chance after second chance. I'm a bit on the justice side, I guess. There's right and wrong and consequences. Um, it's also probably shaped by the small amount of patience that I have. <laughs> um, yet others of you lean a little bit more towards, more towards mercy and compassion. And praise the Lord that that, that, that also occurs. Um, much more inclined for those second chances. But you see, God is both completely just and completely merciful. And here's how. Jesus took on our sin and gave us his righteousness. The full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that the full mercy of God could be poured out on us. Can I ask you a question? Have you accepted this mercy? Have you accepted his plan for you? Or are you trying to find your hope in your own plan? I mean, look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great honour, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You know, I have some, a sense that some listening to my voice today are exhausted. You're worn out from digging your own cisterns. Love, career, money, pleasure, shopping, eating, even good things can become modern-day idolatry if it displaces God from the throne of our lives. Family or children, good things can become a mirage of God things. So the problem with cisterns that we dig ourselves is that we have to keep filling them because they simply don't hold water. We get our fix, but it just leads to the next, and it never satisfies. It can be exhausting, but it's the best this world has to offer us. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a lady who has dug her own cisterns as she'd burned through relationship after relationship. He meets her out of all places. He meets her at a well and offers her something better. Peace. He says something like what Jeremiah said. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. 
Now maybe you've tried all the best water this world has to offer, but have come up thirsty and unsatisfied. Jesus offers water from the well that never runs dry. See, you are deeply loved by the only one who can satisfy your deepest desires. If you have Jesus and a lousy job or no job, if I have you, Jesus, and poor health, if I have you, Jesus, and I'm lonely or sick, if I have you, Jesus, and Albo refuses to call me to ask for my opinion, if I have you, Jesus, and it's a fight just to get out of bed in the morning, if I have you, Jesus, and nothing else, I have everything. You're never without hope. Because why? God is never without a plan. His plan for your life? Well, his name is Jesus. And that's a truth you don't want to let go in one ear and out the other. You know, there's many different seasons in life. Some are easier than others. Some are harder. But what remains true through all of it is our need for God. Seek first his kingdom. Draw near to God. Cast your cares upon him. Consider it joy. In the valleys... On the mountains, soaring upon wings like eagles, run the race set before us. In all our ways, acknowledge him. God's presence is always with us. He has given us his Holy Spirit, so God is always in us and through us and with us. But that doesn't mean that we're always aware of that or acknowledge that. In every season, though, turn to him. In every season, call upon the name of the Lord. You know, I'm reminded of a pause words where it says, pray without ceasing. That's impossible. It's a bit silly. But I think really the, the crux of that is it's really about involving God in your heart's desires each moment of the day. God is with you. He is for you. So draw upon his strength. Stop trying to do it all on your own. You are deeply loved by the only one who can satisfy your deepest desires. You know, as I was reflecting on this, um, this week's um, topic, I was reminded of the book of Habakkuk, a, a book I, I love deeply. Um, the book deals with exactly this time period just before Jeremiah, just before the destruction, where Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord and is saying, I look around... And I see evil flourishing. I look around and I see the faithful in strife. What on earth are you doing, God? And God answers Habakkuk. And he says to him, Don't worry, I see what's going on. And I'm going to send the Babylonians to destroy you, to carry you off to basically rampage the city. And Habakkuk's like, hold on, no, no, no. That's not the answer I was looking for. I was expecting you to come down here and just deliver us and, and stop evil from flourishing. I want instead good and graciousness and, and everything that you see in the scriptures, every promise that you made, I want to see those promises taken care of. 
He wanted all the mercy, but none of the justice. And so God reminds him of who he is and where he is. And so Habakkuk, at the end of just, just three chapters, it's a wonderful book, go and read it this afternoon. He says these words, in the midst of pain, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of this challenge of facing a future in exile, he pens these words, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Is there a more desolate picture? Is there a more painful picture of having nothing, of being absolutely destitute? No food, no possessions, absolutely nothing. The very word, next word he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He doesn't say, Yet I rejoice. He says, Yet I will rejoice. He chooses in those moments to be faithful to the Lord. He chooses in those moments to say, I will rejoice. Even though all this stuff is happening in my life, I will choose to rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Where do you find hope when life sucks? In the Lord. May we have the same confidence in the creator of the universe who still cares for us. He has a plan and a purpose for you. Even though it might be a tough season right now, God's plans are never thwarted. May we rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. May we rest in the Lord who is our strength, who makes our path sure-footed. We're never without hope because God is never without a plan. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the fact that you are a gracious, loving, merciful and just God. Lord, you have given us a glimpse of your heart for us in your scriptures. And Lord, we know that your heart is for us. That you love us so deeply that you have sent a way for us to be with you for eternity. And Lord, the great truth is that we are never without hope because you are never without a plan. Lord, may we take joy in your plans. May we rest in your plans. And may we take joy in you, the God of our salvation. Lord, guide us. Reveal to us your will and your plans. And may we seek to honour you and be faithful in all things. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to conclude our service with one last song, which again focuses on the holiness of God, the God in whom we can take joy. So why don't you stand with us as we sing. <laughs>